0: From Radio Vermont, it's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. It's your show about the people, places, and the issues that matter
1: the most to you. Now here's your host, Dave Graham. Good morning, Vermont. It is Thursday, October the 29th, 2020. So glad to have you listening in this morning here on WDEV, the friendly pioneer FM and AM, that is, of course, and... uh, we have a good show lined up for you this morning. We're going to be speaking in the first half hour here. I wanted to do something uplifting. I'm just, uh, there's too much coronavirus and too much politics in the, uh, in the news and in our conversations lately. So we need to take a break every now and then. And it, it sounds like there's really going to be something cool happening here in central Vermont tomorrow where in a whole bunch of public safety and first responder uh, folks will be uh, putting on a little parade on Granger Road in Berlin. Uh, and that's the one that runs from Air Airport Road, uh, toward, uh, well, uh, the health club there, the, uh, uh, Central Mont Home Health and Hospice, the, there's a, there's a sort of a branch of CBMC, a bunch of doctor's offices up there, and, uh, as well as places like W Tire, UPS, and, uh, FedEx are all up Granger Road, and, uh, uh, there's going to be a whole parade tomorrow morning of uh, public safety and, and first responder personnel, as I mentioned, coming down Granger Road and past uh, CVHH and H Central Vermont Home Health and Hospice. Uh, do uh, yo a persons labor in uh, normal times, uh, going around and visiting people who are uh, who need some home health care here in Vermont? They provide personal care services, nursing services, uh, physical therapy, occupational therapy, uh, all sorts of all sorts of things like that, right in people's homes. Tremendous service and that's in normal times in the coronavirus crisis they have really uh stepped up and been a uh, been just a, an amazing uh bulwark of service to our community and so they're going to get honored tomorrow by this parade going by their headquarters up there on Granger Road and I, I wanted to talk to uh some folks about the uh about the thinking and the planning and all that good stuff that went into the uh went into this and um we're going to be uh, speaking, for instance, with Montpelier Police Chief Brian Pete. Really glad to get him on the show. First time uh, he just uh, came onto the job, I think, back in June. And uh, so we're happy to uh, have uh, Chief Pete with us. I think he's on the phone. Uh, Chief, good morning, and thank you for joining us.
0: Good morning. Thank you very much for the opportunity to be here.
1: Uh, we're all also going to be uh, speaking with um, Alex uh, Bogazewski. I hope I got that right. Alex, are you on the phone?
2: Yes, sir, I am. Thank you.
1: All right. Thanks for joining us. Um, and I understand. Uh, uh, ref- actually, refresh me. You are uh, what kind of a wor- what kind of work do you do for uh, Central Vermont Home Health and Hospice?
2: Um, I got my hands in a few different plots at Home Health. Uh, I'm a personal care attendant, which I started uh, about a year ago this month. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also a community health worker, and then just most recently, I also do tele monitoring installs.
1: I see. Okay. Wow. <laughs> they need you around because they got a lot of different stuff for you to do, it sounds like. Uh, I think we've got, uh, Emily McKenna on the line with, with us as well. She's, uh, a public affairs communications person with, uh, CVHHNH. Emily, are you there?
3: I'm here. Good morning.
1: Good morning. Thanks, uh, thanks so much to the three of you for joining us. And, um I guess I'll start with Alex if I could. And, and, uh, Alex, uh, um, tell us a little bit about the, uh, how this came up and what, uh, what led to uh, the decision to, uh, to uh, have, this, uh, have this little celebration tomorrow.
2: Well, um, well I've, been in, I've worked in the fire service for a little over 10 years now. Um, and uh, probably as you remember, um, CDH kind of had something similar uh, this spring, soon after the pandemic hit. Uh, so I, all summer long, um, I've been kind of hoping maybe we could get one together. Um, and I just always wanted to – our staff at Home Health um, have worked long days, uh, long hours, um, and really taking care of our patients um, and making sure they're really taken care of during the yep. pandemic for those who are uh, homebound. So, you know, I think this would be a good – I always wanted to do a little morale boost for, you know, the staff. And, and, let them know they're
1: actually really appreciated in the community. And, <clears throat> uh, hey, Alex, do us a favor if you could. If you have a radio on, could you turn that down or off? Because I think we're picking up a little bit of an echo on your line. So, uh, Is that, um, sorry, I was on speaker. Yep, yeah, there we go, thanks. Um, and, uh, Chief Brian Pete of the Montpelier Police, I understand that, uh, you and yours will be among the, uh, among the folks who are participating tomorrow. Uh, how did this come to pass?
4: Uh, well we've uh, worked
0: with Alex and we, we've known Alex so um, when when Alex uh, came to us and, and uh, said this was something um, a thought that uh, the folks were uh, at the um, CBHH would were, were thinking about we wanted to jump on board uh, immediately because we we really value and respect what they're doing especially I mean we know how hard Um that job is. So anything that we can do to get back to our community and tell people that we care and support about them, we're going to jump that.
1: That's uh, that's great, and uh, I mean, it, it seems like uh, you know all of these. The, these are all just different styles of helping people. I mean, obviously, CBHH and H has a strong healthcare angle, as well as I mean, many of the other first responders, especially in the uh, in the EMT end of things, are in the same uh, pretty much the same line of work, although uh, different levels of acuity maybe. Um, and then the uh, and and of course, the, you know, the local police and fire departments are are also. I mean, that's their fundamental mission is just to help people who are in distress and uh so let's all get together and have a parade sounds like a good idea to me now uh chief let me i gotta ask you though <laughs> who the heck picked uh the uh 30 30th i guess it'll be of october uh when uh, we are expecting some uh <clears throat> less than clement weather shall we say
0: <laughs> i don't know it's just it's one of those things that just that just panned out that, that way to, to give everybody enough lag time to uh to plan and move forward um yeah, you know at the best opportune times, and um, you know, but anyway, I mean, you know, it, it's I, I think it's just gonna you know show that, show our commitment to our support.
1: Yeah, yeah, sure, uh, I'm, and I'm sure the uh, folks at CVHH and H will be quite appreciative. And uh, Willie, do you expect that there'll be a lot of uh, a lot of the members of the staff there uh, out outside and watching the uh, watching the parade go, go by? Uh, uh, come uh, rain, sleet, hail, or dark of night. <laughs>
5: Well, uh, as you know, Vermonters, and I will say especially home health care clinicians, we're, we're kind of prepared for anything. So
3: mm-hmm.
5: I think that even if there is some inclement weather, we will be there with our masks on, socially distanced with our signs, cheering the parade along. We have put the word out to our staff, and we will send out reminders today. We're going to have individually packaged cider donuts to entice people to come in and out. And um, I hope they do because I we're humbled and we're so appreciative of this show's support. And to go back to your question about timing, I actually think it couldn't have come at a better time um, as we kind of shift from the height of the pandemic and we go into cold and flu season and everything else that's going on. I think this is going to be the perfect, as you said, morale boost that we all need to kind of pick ourselves up and and realize what a great community we live in and, you know, how nice that we can all come together and celebrate the work that we're all doing. So I am I am really looking forward to it tomorrow.
1: Yeah, that's great. Um, And uh, Alex, I wonder, um, you know, you're somebody who is right on the front lines in a lot of the work you do, uh, really going to people's homes and helping them out, uh, getting the telemedicine stuff set up or providing that personal care and, and so on. And uh, your your own daily life has to have changed quite a bit in the face of the uh, coronavirus pandemic over the past what is it now seven or eight months or something? Uh, what's what's different for you now from the way things were before?
2: Um, honestly, uh, not really too much because, um, like I said. Um, with home health being an essential service, uh, my schedule has not really changed.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and then also I work part-time at Practice Supply in Montpelier, so that's also complete essential business. So I work there a couple days a week. Uh, so my life has not really been turned upside down. Um, but, you know, on my free time, like my one day a week that I have to myself on Sundays, um, was really um, when the governor first issued the stay home, stay safe order, uh, really tried to adhere to that, and you know, it's, let's just say, you know, my yard never really looks much better during the springtime <laughs> when, when the first came out, you know, you know, you can't really sit much in the house without going a little bit crazy.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, that's true. It's, uh, is people get outside and there's a lot of folks are saying well as long as i stay on my own property I'm, I'm i'm okay and technically following the rules and so on and so forth uh alex i'm wondering when you when you go to visit people in their homes and so on and and uh i mean i'm, I'm sure you're masked up and and are, is are they are they asked to wear a mask as well as that is that that's the general rule right
2: yeah um you know, we ask, we have some cloth masks that we give to our clients. Uh, we ask them to wear it if, if possible. Uh, mm-hmm. There are some who really medically can't. Uh, so we just, you know, probably, like I'll be with a mask and a face shield, and we'll still socially distance in the home and uh, as much as we possibly can and to make sure the client is taken
1: care, uh, care for it. Yep, yep um and and do you find that most of your clients are are uh, I mean I know there's some division out there frankly you know in our society uh, some people are thinking that uh all this coronavirus stuff is being way overblown and uh, people are 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 uh I mean, our president basically takes the, the kind of a dim view. He's making fun of masks again yesterday, and 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 that kind of permeates down through the, the general population. Are you running into some of that among the folks you are meeting up with as you go out and visit their homes?
2: No, actually, um, you know, every time before I even walk into the client's home, they're already uh, masked up um, mm-hmm. and ready for my visit. Um, so even they have signs on the door. Um, before I enter the home of please wear a mask and sanitize, and sanitize before entering their home. So wow. you know, they're, they're kind of more vigilant than than really out in the public. Wow, Just that's uh, they're, good for them. Realize that they're more
1: vulnerable. Well, I mean, I was going to say is that, is that obviously uh, when you are uh, uh, elderly or, or have certain health conditions which uh, do make you more vulnerable to the coronavirus, I'm sure it makes you, makes you more sensitive uh uh just as, ge- as a general rule although, although you know a lot of other folks are trying to follow the even you know very healthy people are trying to follow the rules and and uh, uh make sure that they mask up when they go out and all that good stuff too um and uh but i just you know i've, I've wondered about the uh about our our, our first responders and and uh, emts public safety people and how the uh how that sort of is into um a uh uh, the daily life and work of, of these folks out uh, let, let me put the question actually to uh chief brian p of the Montpelier uh, police department chief um your your uh, police officers there you 're working with every day um they're they're going out on the beat wearing masks right yes and uh, uh does that are there any negatives there does it is there any are there any moments you 're hearing about the where you know normal law enforcement activities are, are interfered with by this at all or is it a uh, is, it, is it has it become pretty much a routine part of the day and it's just uh, what people do uh,
0: as from from our perspective we're you know in the you know, beginning what, there were a lot of unknowns with with COVID and, and we're learning more and more every day that the state's doing a really awesome job of disseminating and communicating information to us and it's helping us in our day-to-day operational planning so we're we're really grateful for uh, the efforts that that have been going on by everyone in the state. Um, mm-hmm. as far as how we do things, it's uh, yeah we' it's it, it's part of our daily interaction with with folks um, there are we we still do get complaints um, of, of you know of, of people who are upset that there might not be other folks who are wearing um, wearing masks and uh, but fortunately we haven't seen, we haven't seen it rise to the level of contention that we've seen in other places. Like, you know, I just I saw in the newspaper, you know, in my old hometown in Chicago, there were a couple of people that got, uh, that stabbed a security worker for asking oh, yeah. them to, to put a mask on. So, uh, you know, fortunately we haven't, we haven't seen that level of escalation here, but you know, there are, you know, every, you know, there, there are some folks that are, that, that go against the grain every once in a while.
1: Yeah, and, and I mean, have your, have your officers, when they encounter people they're you know, they're trying to talk to about, uh, just investigating a, uh, some kind of a, uh, minor crime or something and they're, they're talking to somebody on the street or on, you know, on a front porch or something, do, do they ask people, ask the people they're talking to to put on masks and, uh, and how does that go usually?
0: Uh, well, it's a, it's a, it's a unique day and age for law enforcement nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, in those, in these cases, we just, we just try to, try not to de-escalate the situation. And, you know, there's a lot of times that, you know, any questions that we may ask, some people, um it may automatically just escalate the situation just our, our presence of being there. But, um in those instances, we just take it upon ourselves to just, we'll move back, we'll maintain, uh, uh, social distancing we'll we'll wear our mask and then we'll we'll ask folks to to comply if they don't then you know it's it's uh we'll just continue to try to go upon uh the issue of which we were we were on the scene for
1: yeah i I mean you kind of have to just say okay well we're gonna keep doing our business here regardless of uh what happens but uh i I would think uh, i mean i've actually thought about i was thinking about this the other day we were driving around somewhere and i said you know, if if I if I got pulled over, I bet you uh, I might score a couple points. <laughs> you know, if I got pulled over for driving a little too fast or something, not that I would ever do that, but I, uh, you know, I, I would I would probably put on my mask just to kind of score a couple points with the officer who has to come to the window. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know,
4: the, the, the thing that I have
0: found even even in my own even even as a cop, you know, because you, know, you should never try to, you know, yeah, I, I won't try to get out of you, know, you get in more trouble trying to get out of it than you you know than, than what it is, but. Normally, you know, what dictates those stops is, hey, if everybody's cool we all get along, most of the times you kind of get away with just a warrant. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah,
1: and, and, and I think, I think that, uh, um, you know, that, that's just a, a step that, that shows, you know, you, you are concerned and you care about the situation as well as the safety of the officer, and, and I, I would think that would be, uh, uh, you know, set up some little mutual respect and appreciation can't help, uh, can't hurt. Rather, <laughs> so yeah,
0: um, yeah. <clears throat> I, I think it goes back to your to, to what you were saying in the beginning that we all need to just we all need need to care about each other, and and I, I think that's a you know, that's what we need more of. That's that's why we're really excited about this.
1: Yeah, yeah. I wanted to I wanted to. Uh, We've been talking a little bit about the special challenges of this coronavirus crisis era for uh, people like uh, police officers. Uh, Chief Pete was talking about uh, how his officers try to negotiate and navigate their way through uh, just going out and meeting with people they have to see, uh, some of whom I gather wear masks and others who don't. And, uh, <clears throat> et cetera. Um, and then, um, Alex, uh, Bogazewski was talking to, talking to us about how it sounds like most of the folks that are being visited in their, visited in their homes are grateful enough for the visits that they will mask right up and do their part to ensure everybody, everybody stays safe. Um, let me, let me start with you, Alex, actually, and ask you, uh, what, what, what is your biggest sort of worry about the coronavirus crisis as you do your work? Uh, going forward, is, is there anything that is p- particularly, um, you know, a, uh, boy, I hope, I hope this scenario doesn't unfold.
2: Um, so, you know, I'm worried about getting it myself just mm-hmm. due to the, cl- the clientele that I serve. Um, so I take extra precautions in my home and personal life just because, um, I deal with a vulnerable adults, and if they get it, you know, they they don't have a lot of good things against them. So, you know, like their age and if they have their health condition. so, you know, if they get it, they're not going to really do so well. So I have to, um, you know, keep myself healthy and yep. make sure when I go to work, uh, we do have screening questions for staff. So, you know, I gotta make sure I answer those the best I can, and, you know, if I don't feel well at all, I'll stay home. Uh, just because I work with, you know, obviously the vulnerable population, so, and you know, that's I guess my biggest fear is I do not want them to get sick.
1: Yeah, you would not want to be the person bringing coronavirus uh, to them. Obviously, that would be uh, that would be a worst, uh, I imagine, a worst case scenario. Uh, Chief Pete, what are your thoughts? Uh, I mean, what, what's the, uh, you know, not that I want to go totally doomsday here, but I mean, what are we, what are we really trying to avoid here?
0: I uh, I think we're just I think we're trying to, you know, first and foremost, to do our best to take care of each other. And um and then to um because we're all interdependent and I think this, this whole pandemic, while it's bad, it, I think it shows that um you know, that interdependency, that, that that need for us to be there for each other and with each other. And um and, and that gives me hope in that and, and I think that um to make sure we get the point across is to, is, is to personalize it. That, um, like, uh, to imagine, uh, you know, I, I look at it and imagine, like, like Alex was saying, if, if, if I caught it and, 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 you know, you know, and not, you know, doing the recommendations and, and everything that I could do to pr- prevent myself from getting it, I'd I second guess myself every time if I got my, my daughter or my wife sick or my parents or anything else to that effect. And and that, that's just something I just don't, me personally, don't want to have to experience in life so you know just take those extra steps to um to mask up to to wash your hands to to maintain social distancing and 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 we
2: will we will get through this
1: yeah you know i i actually um uh you know we've talked about people who kind of don't like the idea of wearing masks and so on uh on the program here a couple times and one of the things that's occurred to me over time is that, is that someone in your, uh, your, your work, uh, Chief Pete and military personnel, certainly firefighters, uh, all don lots of gear every day, uh, and all in, in the name of protecting other Americans. Uh, you know, when you think about the 40 pound air pack that firefighters work, wear and, you know, all the, all the gear on a police officer's belt and so on, it just strikes me that uh um with that with that kind of service and, and ethic of bravery and so on uh you'd think that uh it wouldn't be that much to ask people out there to put a little piece of cloth over their nose and mouth i mean <laughs> am, yeah. am, I, am I out of something there or is it uh is this crazy what do you think chief no
0: i, I sincerely appreciate the sentiment and uh, you know and 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 it's it's it's, it's a matter of personal safety, and and I get it. There, there's a lot of folks that are really disenfranchised with how we're doing things or what things have kind of devolved into. Um, yeah. And in our politics and being divisive with one another, and but but the bottom line is we're all people, we're all human beings. We all have the same
1: wants, needs, and uh, and, and. There you and, go. And, and, hey, that's my that's signal. I got I, I to call it there. Chief Brian Pete of the Montpelier Police Department, uh, Emily Canna, McKenna, and uh, Alex uh, Boguszewski of uh, Central Mont Home Health and Office in Hospice. Uh, the three of you, thank you very much for joining me this morning. It's fun chatting with you. Thank you, Dave. And don't forget that parade on Granger Road tomorrow morning at 8.30, folks. Uh, Stay tuned now for more of the Dave Graham Show following a uh, CBS News Minute at the bottom of the hour here.
6: Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our rockin' deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village.
1: It's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. Hey, thanks for staying with us into our second half hour this morning. Uh, It's Thursday morning, October the 29th, 2020 here. Just, uh, what, five days to go now, I guess, until... Election Day, November 3rd, all sorts of uh, tension, excitement, whatever, nail-biting going on out there. But we're going to skip all that for the next half hour here on the Dave Graham Show and talk about uh, something which is uh, maybe more uh, uplifting than politics. <laughs> Let's talk about saving seeds, and we have a couple of experts with us to do that. Uh, in fact, this is our uh, one of our regular Thursday feature. we do us. Uh, uh, weekly Seeds to Society segment on the Dave Graham Show here at WDEV, uh, with, in conjunction with the uh, College of Agriculture and Life Sciences at the University of Vermont. Uh, they have been uh, really great about providing us with uh, topics and uh, and guests and a little bit of background research and so on to uh, get us uh, get us up and talking about uh, the various issues they have been presenting to us. Last week we had a really interesting conversation with uh, the folks who were involved in the Peace Corps, uh, a couple of Peace Corps veterans, uh, for instance, and um, uh, learned all about the fact that the University of Vermont actually has quite an outsized role in Vermont, the state of, uh, for its population size, has an outsized role in, has had an outsized role in the Peace Corps. So that was a fascinating discussion. Uh, this time, uh, we really get back close to the uh, name of the segment, the Seeds to, so- Seeds to Society segment, because this this is going to be a conversation about saving seeds and what that means and why it's important. And, uh, joining me to, uh, to, uh, lead us in that conversation. We've got, uh, two people here. Um, Sylvia Davitz is an expert seed saver and founder of Solstice Seeds. And, um, uh, she is, uh, she's been, uh, gardening organically for more than 25 years and she, and about 20 years ago she tells us she began to uh, notice a decline in the number of varieties available through commercial seed catalogs and uh started thinking that uh, she wanted to step up and help to uh, preserve and, uh, a good a better variety of seeds going forward into the uh into the future of uh, gardening and agriculture and so on and um Also joining us as a researcher from the University of Vermont, uh, Eric Bishop uh, von uh, Wetberg, is uh, with us this morning. He's been looking into the the sort of uh, ecological and evolutionary aspects of the uh, related plants to the various crop plants that we have and garden plants that we have, and um, uh, the two of them have been... uh, Really involved in this effort to expand the saving of seeds, and it's uh, a an important time of year. I'm sure we'll hear all about what uh, what gardeners are thinking about along these lines in the fall as we start to see our first little sprinklings of snow and stuff so let's uh, let's bring on our guests um, Sylvia davits and eric Eric Bishop von Wetberg uh, thank the two of you very much for joining us this morning. Uh,
3: good morning good morning, good morning, Dave, and good morning, Eric, and thank you so much for uh, having this program and uh, letting us talk about this wonderful subject.
1: Yeah, I'm glad to do it. Um, I, I've actually uh, I had one program on a year or so ago, or maybe not quite that long, but t- talking to uh, a gentleman from India who was um, very concerned about uh, preserving uh, different varieties of, uh, of rice. Uh, rice has become uh, much more sort of monocultural, I guess, over over time. Uh, you know, the influence of a lot of uh, corporate ag players and so on. Uh, and um, uh, this this person was interested in trying to uh, preserve a lot of the local varieties of rice. Uh, and, and I learned a lot about rice that day because, I mean, I guess it makes sense that all of its different uses uh, in, in different foods and uh, in cooking and so on, you, uh, you, you want to have a good variety of rice because they they sort of the different varieties perform differently. Um, talk to us about, about seed saving as a strategy for, uh, you know, your basic Vermont organic farm uh, gardener, Sylvia.
3: Well, I think, um, first of all, I, I, I know who you're talking about, this fellow in India, and his name escapes me at the moment, but I think what's wonderful about the work that he's doing is he's preserving something like 1,400 different varieties of rice, many of which have Mm -hmm. extremely specific personalities and and, uh, ways of uh, usages and things like that. And there are real parallels with that in our own seed systems. Um, I think both Eric and I are working very hard toward both developing and identifying varieties that do really well in our region. And I think that we agree that this is part of the very foundation of Securing a sustainable food system for ourselves here in this region.
1: Eric, Eric talk to us a little bit about. Um, I'm trying to remember what is the motivation for, uh, say, a seed, uh, you know, a seed company to limit the number of varieties out there.
7: It's a great question, Dave. So the the uh, researcher from India that you interviewed is named Debal Deb. Uh, yes. He's, Famous as a seed saver and a, a researcher. What he's trying to do is impressive. And uh, we are, <laughs> I think, all to some extent thinking along the same lines. There are, in the early 20th century, there were a number of people, Luther Burbank, perhaps most famous for this, uh, but his equivalents in Russia, who began intentionally hybridizing crops and um, improve their capacity to do particular things. And the history goes back even farther. During the Napoleonic Wars, the Villemorin Company, uh, that became, uh, I mean, it's now H.M. Claus and Limegren, a huge international seed company, began as a French seed company. And their first big success was making a more sugary sugar beet, uh, with the mm. English blockade of France, the French taste for sugar could not be satisfied from the Caribbean. <clears throat> the drive for a company is to sell seeds over a broad area. And by make, by finding ways to make theirs better or to make theirs the only ones, uh, they, they increase their market. So um, we've had great successes in, in crop breeding, but in narrowing the genetic base, we also leave ourselves at greater risks of things that happen in the broader society of, uh, outbreaking diseases of crops that can't tolerate a changing climate.
1: Um, so yes, that's, uh, th- that's really interesting. I mean, it sounds like, uh, you know, the old saying, variety is the spice of life. Variety is also the sustainability of life. And, uh, This this sort of uh, principle comes up in many, many different areas. We had a conversation on the show here a while back about uh, about the um, um, emerald ash borer and uh, how a lot of communities were very worried about the graceful ash trees uh, lining their main streets and adorning their village centers and uh, city centers and so on. Uh, And one of the pitches I was hearing from, from tree experts was, don't plant all the same species when you go to replace your ash trees because uh if you have an attack on that that affects one species and all you have is one species every one of those trees on your main street are going to be gone and uh uh and it sort of it made sense to me i mean there's a little bit of artistic symmetry and and uh <clears throat> to have uh, all of the uh, all the trees of one of one species i can imagine why that urge comes up, but but I, I I'm also hearing that I'm sorry.
7: There's a great historical parallel to that: the Irish Potato Famine, uh, mm-hmm. where famously well over a million Irish perished and twice as many or more migrated out of Ireland in yeah. the 1840s. The I in a Peruvian potato field. It's not unusual to see as many as 300 different varieties of potatoes, as well as four or five other species that make a low ground structure that is hard for many of us to distinguish from a potato, uh, relatives Mm -hmm. of squirrel and,
2: and a number
7: of other things. There were five potato varieties out of the thousands that can be found in the Andes that made it to Europe. And the Irish were particularly fond of one called the Lumper. It was a great potato. It was huge. It was productive, but it was very sensitive to late blight, and that's the that's the risk. We have a, a similar fondness uh, because it's a great processing potato for um, the the russet Burbank. Uh, the, the first great breeding success of Luther Burbank. And it is susceptible to everything, like Pythium. Sylvia, have you ever tried growing Russet Burbank? Doesn't sound like you know, the case. I, I,
3: I have not specifically. I tend to try to focus more on varieties that are either rare or no longer commercially available. Uh, or that uh, in their descriptions seem to be particularly suited to growing in our region. So um, I, I actually tend to avoid varieties that I know are commonly available, widely available, um, in, in favor of ones that partly show characteristics that we would want to have in our region, things like cold hardiness and disease resistance and adaptability, um but uh, again, ones that are tend to be rare and harder to find, and, and to my mind, those are especially um, valuable for for preserving.
1: Yeah, I uh, I would imagine that would be. I mean, there, there's really not much uh, not much point. I would think, from your perspective, Sylvia, to uh, focusing on on seeds that are widely available at any any hardware store. <laughs> if you're if you're trying to save rare seeds, then uh, that has to be, that has to be, uh, take up pretty much all of your time and, and <clears throat> the physical space of what you're doing and so on and so forth. Um, <clears throat> I won- I'm wondering what are some of the, what are some examples of, uh, of, of crops that you have, uh, been involved in sort of trying to preserve them and, and, uh, uh, and, you know, sustain them into the future?
3: Well, there are a couple of things. I'm very interested in uh, our being able to secure a year-round food supply for ourselves that's locally based. So I do mm-hmm. a great deal of experimentation, and I'll experiment with uh, borderline crops or with crops that have some history in our region. In the middle of the 19th century, something like 40,000 <laughs> acres in Vermont were planted to grains, and we were actually the breadbasket of New England. And uh, grain production and grain cultivation has really fallen by the wayside here, and I think it's something that there are a number of people, a number of groups interested in, in uh, reintroducing and in cultivating. And so I do a lot of experimenting with growing different wheats, uh, different wheats, barley, oats, um, also uh, the so-called pseudo grains like amaranth and sorghum, with a, again with an interest in identifying ones that have the, the potential to really thrive here. I'm also interest, very interested in borderline crops, so I'm doing a lot of experimenting with rice. There are about 13 different varieties that I've been able to grow successfully in the garden here, and I grow them as upland varieties, which means that you are able to just plant them in a plain old garden bed. There's no need to to build a paddy. There's no need mm. to have a really... Um, Copious supply of fresh water to to grow the rice, so it's something that has potential for basically for anyone in their backyard. And again, these are crops. Excuse me. (coughs) um, These are crops that uh, that will feed us year round. That are easy to grow, easy to store, high highly nutritious. Um, I also grow peanuts. That's another borderline crop. So I'm really, wow. <laughs> I'm really interested in sort of in the jaw dropping crops that uh, you know, if people hear that you're growing peanuts and you're making your own peanut butter, mm-hmm. they tend to love that.
1: Yeah, that's that, that is a uh, we don't we don't think of that uh, happening in Vermont uh, very very uh, often or readily, but. Uh, there you go. I, I actually uh, did a story I used to work for the Associated Press and I did a story years ago about a woman who was growing limes in a greenhouse down in Danby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I said, "Wow, citrus in Vermont. What do you what do you think?"
3: Right. A neighbor of mine grows figs in her greenhouse. Yeah. So again, we need to expand our imagination in in terms of what it's possible to grow here in Vermont. I think there's the range of things is is far wider than we naturally suspect.
1: I believe we have a listener calling in, uh, uh a listener with a little bit of an asterisk after his name because he's not just a listener on WDEV, he's also a co-host of, a, he's a listener to our program, but he's co-host of a, of a WDEV program called In the Garden. Peter Burke joins us. Good morning, Peter. In the Garden, for sure,
4: inch by inch. Um, yep. Hey, thanks for this show. This is great. I uh, really appreciate it. I had
1: a question um if uh, either Sylvia or Eric had fooled around or tried to grow uh, quinoa at all. And w- one of the things that, that I've read about it and that I'm kind of intrigued by it is that it likes a cool,
2: moist uh, 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 weather and uh, also
1: is that it has a complete protein and that, that uh, is particularly interesting to me. Sylvia?
3: Well, if I, yeah, if I could jump in. I actually have experimented with growing quinoa uh, and once again, it's partly because I'm I'm just so interested in growing as many different basic uh, crops sure. as we possibly can. Uh, quinoa has some very special requirements because it is native to the highlands in uh, in South America, and so the conditions under which it best thrives are very different from what we have here. And so I've experimented mostly with with varieties that come from most more coastal areas in Chile where uh, the climate is more temperate and more similar to ours. It's a crop that is extremely susceptible to moisture, and in the couple of years that I experimented with it, we had some rains and some moisture exactly when the plants were flowering, and that just basically destroyed any potential for, uh, mm, for seeds mm. to develop. But I have talked to other people who've grown it with greater success in Vermont, so I think it's something that would definitely be worth experimenting with and experimenting with a whole range of different varieties and doing it over the course of several years so that you could really get to know the crop and know what conditions it wanted and which varieties had the greatest potential.
7: Okay.
8: All right.
7: I'll add to that that our colleague, Professor Tom Davis at the University of New Hampshire, is working to take some of the wild native relatives of quinoa, uh, a species in Latin called quinopodium burlandii and it's very closely related to quinoa. Uh, with some difficulty, one can even cross it to quinoa. And he's working on that for... The, Some of the reasons Sylvia elucidated that it it has better resistance to a Vermont climate and because it's from our temperate region instead of the tropical highlands, its flowering is uh, controlled by day length. Uh, So it it will flower at a more appropriate time uh, here. Uh, But he He's got uh, the student that he's working with, Clay Ludwig. They uh, they're making good progress, but it, it may be a few years before they've got varieties to share.
1: Well, that's okay. so cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well,
4: I had uh, a fellow named Bill Dornan on my show, and he was doing a, uh,
1: a Seed Savers class up at uh, Sterling College. And uh it's just, it's fascinating, and I'm just uh, so glad you're doing what you're doing. Thank you. Thanks for the call, Peter. <coughs> Appreciate it. Yep, bye-bye. Yeah. <coughs> Sylvia, I wonder, um, tell us, uh, just two minutes to go, actually, but uh, very quickly, what what's happening right now in your gardening uh, operation, uh, seed saving wise? What, what goes on in the late fall?
3: Well, mostly what goes on is Selecting crops that are biennial that will produce seed in the following year. Those get set up. They've been growing in the garden to a relatively mature state. I dig them up and I transplant them into my greenhouse for wintering over. Uh, I like to think about what is most, what, what are the most common foods that we eat in the winter here in New England. And most of them are biennials, which means that they will grow vegetatively in the first year, but they will not flower and produce seed until the second year. So the challenge there is to keep them alive over the winter. Mm -hmm. So things like leeks and carrots and beets and celeriac, uh, some radicchio, some kale, all of these things get transplanted into the greenhouse uh, at this time of year and selected for their best characteristics for seed production in the following year so that's mostly what's going on right now
1: I see, ok um, well as it happens uh, we are about out of time for this segment I wish we'd uh, schedule a whole hour for this topic because it's fascinating but uh, uh, Eric Bischof von Wettberg of the University of Vermont and uh, Sylvia Davitz um, uh, expert uh, seed saving gardener thank you very much for joining me this morning
3: Thank, Thank you Dave. very
1: much, Dave. It's been a real pleasure. Let's go to uh, some top-of-the-hour uh, news from CBS, and we'll continue with our today's edition of the Dave Graham Show just afterwards. Stay with us, folks.
6: Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren's store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village.
0: It's the
1: Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM. Thanks for staying with us in the second hour of our program on this uh, October 29th, Thursday morning, 2020. as we like to do after the uh, top of the show break uh, like to bring bring in one of our national correspondents to sort of broaden the lens uh, get outside of Vermont 's borders a little bit and find out what 's going on elsewhere around the country or sometimes even around the world and uh, Today we have uh, Maria Garcia of uh, CBS News joining us to fill us in on the latest news nationally. On the coronavirus the first couple of segments this morning I was saying let's talk about something else but uh, you can't avoid this uh, <laughs> th- this topic it is just so vitally important uh, right now and um, Maria Garcia thank you very much for joining me this morning
9: well you're very welcome big thanks for having me
1: and uh, fill us in a little bit uh, I mean the the, the uh, what I'm picking up uh, just from news reports including CBS is that uh, we're seeing the giant surge in the coronavirus around the country right now
9: yeah, uh, definitely a surge, what uh, many health officials are just calling the beginning of the second wave, which was expected, but I guess many health officials thought that we could keep that from happening if we had really, you know, brought down those uh, mask mandates and so forth. But unfortunately, it doesn't look like we're going to avoid a second wave. It looks like we're just pretty much starting it or, or already underway and uh, we're seeing surges everywhere across the U.S., you know, North Dakota, Kentucky, Oklahoma, Texas, Florida, you name it. Um, there's, there's just more cases. But the good news is, there is good news. Uh, we're not seeing as many deaths, and hopefully that will continue to be the case. So while there are more cases, there are less deaths, as doctors have learned. You know, it, it was a learning curve from the beginning, um, mm-hmm. At the beginning of, this, of, the, of, the, of the pandemic, and in March especially, we were seeing many, many more deaths, and now we're seeing an 80% decline in deaths, um, which is all about the treatment, um, more mask wearing and more people being aware. And, of course, there's also the issue of um, there's more young people uh, getting COVID, which also, in a, in a weird sense, although there's more cases, there's an increase in survivability, so that's yeah. the plus
1: of this side right now. Um, I And, and I, I don't mean to just be the, the uh, person solely adding the minuses here, but uh, for the young people getting coronavirus, uh, that that can leave you with lingering health conditions. I mean, obviously, we don't really know what or for how long because this is, uh, as they keep saying, it's a novel thing. It's a novel coronavirus. And, uh, it's
9: a novel w- virus, absolutely. Yep. Well, they're not, well, what, what you know, obviously what we're seeing is, um, more younger people since they, you know, uh, we, they kind of tend to hang out in groups. So a lot of them yep. will get sick, a group of friends, so forth. Um, for the most part, they don't even end up hospitalized. So that helps. Um, mm-hmm. there, is, there are apparently lingering, I'll tell you from just my own family, we've had three of my family members um, have uh, COVID, most of them older, and they're seeing they're experiencing a major difference in, in even a flight of stairs, that is a bigger challenge. Where the younger people, uh, we had one of our, our family members who was, in, who was in his 20s, had zero, never ended up in the hospital and has had zero, um, uh, any kind of, um, uh, you know, lingering effects. And he says, I feel fine. He was barely sick. He barely, he was surprised when they actually told him he had COVID, he had to get tested for work. Um, mm-hmm. and he was shocked because he said he'd never even got anything like even a cold or a fever. So um, they may not be seeing as many residual effects as someone who's older and has just an older immune system who can't, they can't fight it off as easily as someone who's younger.
1: Yeah, that, that's uh, and, and what is the projection right now in terms of this wave? I mean, that sounds like something which rises and then recedes. Uh, uh, are we going to see this recede, uh, you know, by, by say the end of the year, or is it going to last through the winter, or what are we thinking?
9: <laughs> that is a million dollar question. Um, I, I would like to say that we're, that it's going to, like every wave, see, uh, the ebb and flow, so to speak. Um, but basically we're, we're hearing from the Trump administration, you know, the head czar right now, the COVID testing czar, they're calling him, you know, Brett, Brett Gouet, um, he says, basically, if we don't make changes um, in the mask wearing, in the, you know, keeping what we're, you know, another big thing that's happening right now is that because people are generally Americans and everywhere really around the globe, people are tired of COVID. Of course, we're tired of dealing with closures and, and limitations and mask wearing. So a lot of people are, are basically saying, like, oh, to heck with it. Let's have some celebrations. Let's have a birthday party. Let's have a wedding. We just recently had a wedding um, here in New York on Long Island, where and you know they had 90 people over 50 people max, so they had 90 people. After, of those 90 people, 30 people ended up getting COVID and spreading it to God knows how many other people. Um, so unless we make changes, according to the Trump administration's own testing czar, unless we start making changes, we're not going to be seeing um, any any kind of difference anytime soon, and that'll just make it go much longer for the second wave. Eventually, like with everything else, this is going back to the Spanish flu even. Um, yeah, eventually, uh, about a year after the Spanish flu killed thousands of people, um, things leveled off and eventually things went back to normal. But our new normal is going to stick around longer unless the states that are having these high spikes start really put, pulling back and making those mask mandates stick and really keeping sanitation levels down. Uh, We had a huge change in cases in New York um, with sanitizing the subways and sanitizing all of the buses. So Hmm. um, that's really where we're going to see changes if these states with high cases start making those changes.
1: And um, uh, talk to me a little bit about uh, this theory that is being floated around about herd immunity, and I wonder if uh, some of what's happening out there is uh, kind of the application of that. Is that possible?
9: Well, I guess you know this herd immunity idea is where the media, basically, uh, and and even people in general, are saying, okay, so the president's running around having these you know large campaign rallies and telling telling the American people that we're turning a corner. Um, So what is being inferred from this is that basically what the White House is aiming for is herd immunity, which will eventually, would eventually work, but that is at, unfortunately, the downside is a lot more people getting sick, a lot more people ending up hospitalized, and possibly more deaths. So herd immunity, while it's a great concept, it also means a lot more pain and suffering for people who would maybe not be going through that if, you know, if pulling back would be the ideal situation. Um, It's just unfortunate that um, this has been politicized. That's the big downside here, Um, because there are just a lot of people who refuse to kind of take the science part of this, and they're refusing to understand that no matter what, whether we pull it back with using masks and, and, and you know, keeping these closures going or we go with herd immunity, no matter what, people are going to suffer. And until it hits home, it does not really um, resonate with many people.
1: The uh, the politicizing of this really strikes me as amazing. I want to get your thoughts on it because years ago, you know, you'd go up to the uh, to the glass door of a store and you'd see a sign there that said no shirt, no shoes, no service. And I don't remember ever thinking that those strategies, it, whether you know your status as a it Democrat or a Republican right. mattered. Whether
9: that, yeah, whether that was negotiable at all, and it's still not negotiable. But yet the mask situation has become absolutely politicized there's no question about it there was there was you know speculation at the beginning but now there's no question about it it is a very polarizing very um, political issue and unfortunately because there's a big election on on the line this year um it has become a you know a trump or everyone else issue and it is unfortunate because it just means no matter what the reality is, no matter where you stand on your politics, the reality is there are still people getting sick, there are still people suffering, there are still people dying. Uh, more than 200,000 dead now in the U.S., and there are going to be a lot of empty seats at holiday tables this year. No matter what, no matter where you stand on your politics, that is reality, and there is no doubt
1: about that. I don't think the virus is either red or blue, folks, so just keep that in mind. Uh, hey, uh, well, Maria Garcia, um, I've kept you probably longer than I should have. I really appreciate you uh, giving us this time this morning, and thank you so much for joining us, Maria Garcia of CBS News.
9: Thank you so much, and I'm happy to be here with you anytime.
1: Alrighty, we'll talk soon. I've been uh, working up a little series this week of interviews with uh, our top candidates for top Vermont state offices, and uh, earlier this week we spoke with uh, Scott Milne, the Republican nominee for lieutenant governor. Uh today we're going to be speaking with Molly Gray, the Democratic candidate for lieutenant Governor, and uh tomorrow Dave Zuckerman, the Democratic nominee for Governor, will be joining us on our air here at about uh this time ten fifteen or so um and of course, we uh reached out uh repeatedly to the uh cam- campaign of uh, Governor Phil Scott he's running for a third term the Repu- Republican incumbent that is, and uh unable to work out an appearance by Governor Scott, I'm sorry to say but uh We uh, did give it our best. And uh, anyway, uh, today is Molly Gray's turn, and I believe she is on the phone with us. Uh, Molly, good morning. Thank you for joining us.
10: Good morning, Dave. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be on.
1: And uh so talk to us a little bit about uh kind of give us your your uh summation speech. I, I guess here we have 4 days or so to go before election day. And uh what 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 are the main points that you would like Vermonters to take away from the uh, campaign you've been uh, you've been conducting so far?
2: Well,
10: thanks again for having me. I think this is the last radio show of a uh, long and exciting and positive, forward-looking, issue-focused campaign. I was uh, in St. Albans just last week, Springfield earlier this week, Richmond this morning, up in Hyde Park and Waterbury the last couple of days, just um, staying focused, staying focused on Vermonters. And this campaign has always been about the future of Vermont. And, you know, I got into the race because of our demographic challenges. We've really struggled to keep a generation here, bring a generation back, and bring a new generation to Vermont at a time when, our workforce continues to shrink. As you know, and I think we've talked about before, we're one of the oldest states in the country. Uh, we have more deaths than births in a majority of Vermont counties. And we've really struggled. We've struggled to grow our tax base or even m- maintain it. And uh, 20% of Vermonters are set to be over 65 in the next 10 years, which isn't old. But we've got to think about the future. So that's what got me into this race. But... What we've learned from COVID is that the same issues that are facing a generation that want to stay in Vermont or come home to Vermont are the issues that have come up through this pandemic. Equity and access to childcare, on average, Vermonters pay $20,000 a year. Um, Equal access to broadband and internet, you know, a fourth of Vermont geographically still can't get online today. And why does this matter? It it matters because we need to keep people in the workforce. We need to allow people to access remote work or online learning. So we're at a crossroads. We know we're not going to go back. We know we have to go forward. And I have the experience that we need in this moment to help lead us out of this crisis, to recover stronger, and to also address some of these demographic challenges um, in the meantime. And I'm thrilled to be on the air today. Thanks again for having me.
1: Um, I, I wonder, I wanna, I wanna talk about demographics first because we've, uh, apparently seen a little blip this year. Uh, we, of course, have had a decade-long decline in our overall population, but, uh, this year we're starting to see people coming into Vermont, uh, I don't know whether short-term or long-term, but, uh, one of its chief attractions is its low COVID numbers and, uh, people uh, fleeing, uh, especially big cities where there are much higher COVID numbers. Uh, do you think that that, that, that could help to, uh, to reverse the demographic uh, downward trend. Do you think that Vermont needs to take any special steps to try to grab these people while they're here and say, hey, uh, put down roots and stay?
10: Yes, absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up. I'm sure you've heard the same thing that I have in traveling around the state, be it down in southern Vermont. In Windhall, I think the population's grown by 10,000, for example. Up in Waitsfield, I was talking to a realtor who's selling homes unseen. I think there's some challenges there that we need to address, making sure that Vermonters can access affordable housing, of course. But let's be honest. People are looking to Vermont as a place where there's low COVID rates. You know, knock on wood, we can continue that. You know, We've worn our masks. We've maintained social distancing. We've done a lot to be able to keep our businesses open and our schools open. And so, I think we have to really think of this as a moment of um, strategic economic investment so that when people are looking to the state, they're looking to Orange County, where I grew up, in Newberry or the Northeast Kingdom and Southern Vermont as great places to live as much as they're looking to Chittenden County. And that means we have to have those those really strategic investments in our economic infrastructure, broadband, for example, right? If you can't get online in uh, Chelsea or Newberry, you know, one in three kids still can't get online in Newberry today where I grew up, you're not going to want to move there and to get kids into a great local school. So I see this as one where we have to continue to welcome people to Vermont. This is a, a welcome investment, but also make sure that we're um, putting together the economic investments uh, statewide to, to make sure the population is And it's equal, equal uh, economic opportunity for the state. But you're absolutely right. I mean, we're seeing a migration, and I think that's a positive thing.
1: The numbers here, uh, WDEV's local number in Waterbury, 244-1777. The toll-free number, 1-877-291-8255. Molly Gray is my guest. She is an assistant attorney general in Vermont and is the Democratic nominee for lieutenant governor. And I believe we do have a listener on the line. Uh, Evan is calling from, uh, is it Chelsea? Uh, Pomfret, uh, Pomfret, sorry. Vermont. Pomfret, got it. Good morning, Evan. Good morning. Hi, Molly.
10: Hi, Sounds Evan, like a, thanks for calling for Comfort. I was just down your way.
0: <laughs> I saw. Um, I think you actually just answered the question I was going to call about, um, so I'll ask another one. Um, in a world that seems so tragically infested with negativity, um, your campaign has stuck out as maintaining positivity, which I very much appreciate. Uh, can you talk a little bit about just what maintaining positivity means in the role of government, especially in today with such a you know, divided political landscape?
10: Sure. No, thanks. That's such an important question. You know, we see nationally a divisiveness that, uh, at least in in my lifetime, I've never uh, seen before. And I think many Vermonters Americans would agree. Um, We are divided as a nation. Uh, Here in Vermont, I think we often pride ourselves on, you know, we're not Republicans or Democrats or independents. We're first and foremost all Vermonters. And we love our state and we love our communities. And, um, you know we always put people before politics which this campaign has been about from the beginning i'm so proud of uh, our amazing campaign team and if i may just give them a quick shout out you know my campaign manager samantha's been running the campaign from her home in hancock uh graham from rochester uh, hazel's from up in morrisville david uh, is uh, from shelburne vermont and we've had volunteers working tirelessly across the state and a lot of supporters, too, in, in small towns. And this campaign has really been about unifying Vermont and bringing more Vermonters from diverse backgrounds, you know, be it business leaders or educators or veterans or the next generation of, of leaders into, into the campaign, talking about the issues and saying incredibly focused on the issues, not only because that's the Vermont way, as I see it, and I think we all deserve but we just don't have time for negativity when in reality, um, when in reality we're facing a global pandemic, right? There are you know, one in four of are food insecure right now. We're trying to prepare for a winter when we in many ways have been through a winter the last you know six or seven months with this pandemic and a lot of um, a lot of challenges. So you know, this campaign has been about focusing on the issues. I'm proud to be the only candidate not to run negative ads, um, to run a really positive, issue-focused, and forward-looking campaign. So <laughs> I, I, I hope that we can uh, keep that up. We will keep that up through the next five days. And certainly as lieutenant governor, that will maintain um, you know, the, the focus for me. You know, I think you can tell a lot about how someone will lead by how they'll campaign, and I hope Vermonters are seeing that
3: with our campaign.
1: Well, Let's I'm go to Lawrence to in Burlington, Molly. Thank you so much. All righty, th- thank, th- thank you for the call, Evan. Let's go to Lawrence in Burlington.
4: Hi, uh, I have a question for Molly Gray. We've heard a lot about your opponent's experience in small business and making millions in Bitcoin investments. What is your experience with Vermont small business, and how will that help you as lieutenant governor?
10: Well, um, Lawrence, and I, I don't know a lot about Bitcoin, but I do know a lot about uh, hard work. I grew up in Orange County. I was actually born on the farm in Newberry. Um, my folks and brothers still run and family still run uh, a vegetable and dairy farm, Jerseys, uh, more than Holsteins. And I have an incredible appreciation and understanding for what our small businesses have gone through. You know, it's, was really scary going into the summer, not knowing um, how things were going to work. What was it going to look like? You know, how do you get uh, produce to market? Um, you know, I know our farmers' markets opened, and I think you know so many businesses have had to adapt and to adapt really, really, really quickly. You know, they're at the heart of part of our state. Uh, our general stores who have been supplying goods and and services to communities you know throughout this pandemic. So I understand that, I appreciate that. You know, I'm also proud to have worked at the worthy burger, bartending at night, uh paying paying for law school, getting through law school. Um, and I'm really, really proud as a candidate to have the support of gosh, you know, fifteen or sixteen businesses from across the state, be it Wassex Family Tire down in Bennington, uh generationally owned uh tire business or seventh generation, which we know has been a leader here in Vermont in, in housing uh products. Um, ben and Jerry's just Ben and Jerry just endorsed earlier this week. So, you know, not only do I understand the needs of our businesses and I've worked for for uh, some, but also very very proud to be supported by them and uh, look forward to being a voice for our businesses as lieutenant governor.
1: Thank you, Lawrence. That answer your question? Yes, it did. Thank you. Alrighty, thanks for the call. Uh, Molly, you've uh, taken a little heat over the, over these months of campaigning from your opponent Scott Mill and his people over the uh, questions of your residency and, um, uh, do you think it, do you think that going forward as, as uh, Vermont is going to have to grapple with the emerging from this coronavirus crisis in the future, um, uh, where you were living in 2017 and 18, uh, is is going to matter in the day to day lives of Vermonters in twenty one and twenty
10: two? Well, I just want to take a moment and um, just recognize, you know, we see a lot of negativity negativity nationally. You know, um, Donald Trump uh, runs campaigns that are focused on attacking his opponent, and you know, I think we've seen some of that here in Vermont. I don't, I don't think it's the right thing. Um, so, this, you know, this is a part of uh, you know the, the campaign style of my opponent, but you know, I do want to talk about what it means to grow up here in the state. And I feel very, very proud to have grown up on a farm and gone through our education system from uh, playgroup, kindergarten, all the way through Vermont Law School. Um, I've had the chance to work for a congressman in Washington uh, at the height of the Iraq War, worked for the Red Cross when my own brother was serving in the Marine Corps overseas in Iraq. I came home in 2011 to go to Vermont Law School and I was at bartending through night, through, you know, at night through law school. And then over the last decade, worked in communities across our state in uh, Tumbridge and Rutland and Bethel and Montpelier. Today I serve as an assistant attorney general, but I also had the opportunities to do some pretty incredible work with the State Department and international partners um, with the Swiss government to launch the first international association in the world to help hold private contractors accountable for human rights abuses. And at a time- Molly, I got
1: to stop you there for just briefly, anyway, because uh, uh, we got to go to a bottom of the hour break for some CBS News. But uh, we will return and continue our conversation on the other side. Stay with us, folks. More of our uh, conversation with Molly Gray, a Democratic nominee for lieutenant governor, in just a couple of minutes.
6: Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our rockin' deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village.
1: It's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. Continuing our conversation with Molly Gray, the Democratic candidate for lieutenant governor of Vermont. And uh, I believe we have a listener who's calling in. Is it Lawrence from Burlington? Lawrence there? no, okay is Molly gray there'
10: still <laughs> Mo- so with us molly
1: <laughs> all right molly 's here and and uh you you were in the middle of uh, sort of talking about this uh i guess the negative campaigning that you feel you 've been seeing uh in this campaign um and and your uh your sense of um uh, i mean i I do want to give you a little bit of pushback on this because I mean essentially what they're what the, what, I'm, what you're hearing from the other side is just uh, uh, well you know you, you have to answer for your record and 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 uh, and I'm just what I'm trying to find out from you is do you think it it should matter at all uh, to a Vermonter who maybe is calling the lieutenant governor's office in you know 2021 or 2022 while you're in office uh, to seek constituent services of some kind or whatever. Um, it, is, is is where you were in 2017 or 2018 really going to play much of a role in that transaction or that exchange right there?
10: Yeah. No, I, I appreciate the question. And I think, you know, first and foremost, I'm qualified, qualified to run. I feel very qualified to lead. And what I want Vermonters to hear is and not only are they talking to someone who grew up in Orange County and went to school throughout the state and has lived and worked throughout the state and served statewide as an assistant attorney general and worked in washington for a congressman but also someone who's worked in times of crisis with the red cross and also um, worked overseas uh, helping to launch a global initiative and really has the skills and experience not only to work in times of crisis but uh to work uh for vermonters every single day and is deeply deeply rooted in our state and I think I have a lot of exceptional um, qualifications that are going to make me a really, really effective lieutenant governor. But more importantly, you know, it's what I hear from Vermonters every single day, You know, that we're talking about the issues that are most important to them and that I get it and will be there working. Uh, and I look forward to getting through the next five days, but most importantly I look forward to the work that I think we're going to be able to do in the coming years to really transform the future of our state.
1: Let's bring in uh, John from Hardwick, I believe, is on the line. Good morning, John. John from Hardwick, are you there? Hello. Yes, good morning.
7: Hi, this is actually Jason from Burlington.
1: Oh, hey, Jason from Burlington. Good morning.
7: (laughs) Good morning. Um, So I live in Burlington, but I have a, a lot of friends and relatives who live in small towns um, all around vermont and one thing i hear a lot from them is concern about losing their um, community schools to consolidation and as a result losing one of the things that ties their community together and the pandemic has shown that we can be really creative about how school works when we need to so i'm curious for molly as someone who grew up in a small town uh, what kinds of creative solutions she sees that would allow small towns to keep their schools
10: Thank you, Jason. Yeah, one of the things that I hear about again and again as I travel around the state or uh, gather with, with Zoom uh, is you know, what happens with our schools. I grew up in Newberry, went to Newberry Elementary School, which is still in our town green, and it's where we have town meeting. It's where the community comes together. So I think like a, a lot of small towns, to imagine a town without a an, an elementary school, without a local school, is to imagine the town not existing, the town won't be there. So I feel very, very strongly that we have to support our local schools, that we have to keep them, we have to keep them open, um, and doing that in a way that, you know, is community-by-community focused. But what we're learning from this pandemic is that education is changing. Uh, we've got so many schools that are doing hybrid learning, so some days in the classroom, um, some days at home. And if I may just give a shout-out to all of the parents who are trying to navigate that every single day right now. It is a lot. And our teachers as well who are figuring out a lot of diverse lessons plan- lesson plans and had to do that in the middle of a pandemic, right? We shut down in March and asked everyone to change how we're doing business. So I want to recognize that what I see is in a Vermont where we have equal access to broadband, where Newberry, where I grew up, or Brookfield where kids still can't get online, can get online, we may start doing education a little bit differently. Um, And we may not, but at least we have the ability to do that so that kids aren't falling behind and that our local schools can stay um, open, You know, I was up in Craftsbury up in the Northeast Kingdom. We did eight community forums across the state in September and talking to parents who were literally driving uh, kids into town to park in the parking lot. I think it was outside the library because that's where um, Internet could be accessed, which is fine in September. But that's not going to work in in December, or January or February. So we have to figure this out. And I think we're in a transformative moment where we really have to get feedback from our teachers, feedback from parents, and figure out um, how we can keep our small schools open and do that in a way that maximizes the use of technology. Uh, you know, And broadband's not going to happen overnight, but I think our congressional delegation is committed to, to making this the next rural electrification. I was just talking to Congressman Welch. We were down uh, in Springfield campaigning together, and um, I know he's focused on this. So... More in a moment, and I think we need to be visionary and, and really think about how to preserve our local schools. Thanks so much for the question.
1: Molly Gray, uh, Democratic candidate for lieutenant or nominee for lieutenant governor, is uh, is my guest. And uh, local number in Waterbury two four four one seven seven seven. Or if you want to call the Dave Graham Show uh, toll free, you're welcome to do that. That's one eight seven seven two nine one. 8255, uh, really appreciate the listeners, uh, weighing in here with, uh, letting us know what is on the minds of, uh, Vermonters out there and what our, uh, elected officials and would-be elected officials should be thinking about. Uh, let's, uh, let's bring in another caller. I believe we have Julia from Stowe. Good morning, Julia.
5: Hey there. Um, hi, Molly. Um, thanks for taking my question. So, you know, my question kind of comes down to livability. I, we hear a lot, especially from conservatives or the Republican Party, about why Vermont is not an ideal place to live. And they say that, you know, where people choose to move and settle down is based on marginal tax rates. But to my knowledge, that there's actually no evidence for this. And as a young par- or, you know, parent of young children, you know, from what I hear from my friends and what I assume the evidence shows is that people actually choose where they live based on quality of life. Um, and things like a healthy environment, affordable child care, schools, like the last caller said. Um, and I know that Molly is committed to this, but I wanted to hear more about what she thinks that we need to do in Vermont to maintain or improve the quality of life so that we especially attract more young families like, like myself and my family to the
10: state. Molly? Thanks, Julia. Yeah. Thanks so much for calling in. Um, this comes up again and again, or I think there's this, this, a question that Vermont's not affordable, and it's and it's true. I mean, Vermont is an incredibly expensive place to live. If I can share, you know, personally for a moment, um, you know, I'm 36, and I'll admit that on the air, and uh, I still have student loan debt despite all that bartending through law school. So, working to pay that off, and probably won't be able to buy a home until I do. And so, every month, you know, and this is what I hear from from young families too that you're just looking at how many different ways the paycheck's going to be chopped up, you know, from that $20,000 a year for child care, student loan debt, and then, you know, thinking about health care, um, you know, utility bills, you know, and the list goes on. And at some point, you know, we have to figure out how can we make strategic investments here in the state that are both going to make Vermont an affordable place to live, um, an attractive place to live, right? Because, you know, This is an incredible state, right? Not only do we have the best beer in the world, but the best cheese in the world, and hopefully continue to have some of the best skiing in the world or mountain biking. And I was just up um, today uh, up in Lamoille on the rail trail, which is pretty exciting. And we have so much to offer, and we're on the cutting edge of so many different areas, uh, be it renewables or local resilient food systems, agriculture. Uh, so it's really about what investments can we make right now to make it just a little bit easier for people to stay in their jobs, which is why childcare is so incredibly important. Why you know, figuring out the broadband gap? But I also want to talk about what I hear from our businesses. The, the biggest challenge. One of the biggest challenges facing our businesses is recruitment and retention. You name the profession, nursing, education, plumbers, electricians, the list goes on. Uh, there's a hard time finding folks here in the state who are ready to go into those jobs. Yet, we have the highest high school graduation rate in the country, and we should be so proud of that. Yet 41% of our graduates don't go on to VTC, where my mom went, or NVU, Johnson State, or Linden State, where my uncles went, um, or to UVM, or even you know into CCV. And I think if we're going to help our businesses and make sure we've got skilled, trained, um, qualified workforce, we need to make an investment in making sure our higher education is affordable and accessible here in vermont to get people into those good paying jobs so it's childcare, it's education uh, it's equal access to internet and broadband and uh, doing that in a way that really sets us up for a viable uh, economic future thank you thanks julia for the call
1: thank you julia molly uh, i i seem to recall you are a supporter of a 15 dollars minimum wage right
10: i do i do think that's the direction to go but i want to be clear you know it's it's not as much about you know how how uh, how much we raise the minimum wage I mean that's important but I want to go back to how many ways people are chopping up the paycheck right and mm-hmm. you know twenty thousand dollars a year on childcare it's tough to find a job as a single parent that is going to allow for that um, we see a lot of you know dual parent households with you know both people, um, you know, working full time to ch- just try to make a child care payment. So, you know, I think you know one one piece of the puzzle is, is the minimum wage, but the other piece is ad- ad- uh, identifying and addressing some of these other um, other costs, and um, you know, doing that in a way that allows our economy to thrive.
1: So, how do you do that? What do you what do you actually want to, or what do you see being the uh, answer to? some of that problem of the expenses facing uh, especially young families.
10: Yeah. I think and I think I've, I said it earlier and if not, it's something I've certainly talked a lot about on the campaign trail. And it's really about aligning our budget with our greatest needs and Vermonters do that every day, right? We've been doing that throughout this pandemic, um, looking at our own household budgets and making adaptations. Our businesses are doing that. You know, looking at labor costs, looking at uh, you know, the cost of doing business. And the same thing is true with our budget. We will see, hopefully, another round of COVID relief funding coming from the federal government to Vermont, uh, as we did earlier this spring. And, and one thing we did earlier this, this spring was was kind of do a needs assessment, right? And we spent $5 million on child care. The governor, working with the legislature and the federal delegation, made a strategic investment in child care, and so that's what I see as we move forward, you know, with the second round of COVID relief funding, but making sure that we identify the priorities and then are um, aligning our budget with those priorities and our values as a state.
1: I Wanted to uh, bring in a couple of uh, a couple of callers here. Uh, we have uh, Kip from Middlebury has been patiently waiting on the line. Good morning, Kip.
4: Uh, good morning. Can you hear me? Okay. Yes. Okay, great. Um, well, I just wanted to uh, ask uh, Molly uh, a question or two. Um, sure. I had very little. She's got very little name recognition, um, you know, in the lead up to this election, and I am very impressed so far with what I've what I've heard today. Um, first question is on the whimsical side: uh, if she does become lieutenant governor, which parade in the Fourth of July will she walk in? First question. <laughs> Second question is. Can she – and this is a question that I've asked probably uh, every governor uh, since uh, maybe Madeline uh, What, In your mind, what's the difference between a Democrat and a Republican? Thanks. Uh, well, okay. I was just
10: curious. Are you on a job site? Where are you? Where are you today? Yeah, I'm about
4: 20 feet up on a ladder right now. <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> um, you okay. feeling high and mighty, Molly, so watch out.
4: <laughs> I was just uh, in um
10: water – Waterbury Center on Monday, meeting with a arborist, and um, we're going to take a picture. And they're like, "Well, put you put you ten feet up in the in the bucket." And I was like, "Well, let's take it to the top." So I went fifty feet up, and that was quite a trip. But uh,
4: yeah.
10: um, <laughs> my uh, my proverbial hat hat hard hat off to everyone working outside today. And I know it's getting colder, um, but I love the question. Man, asking me to choose the parade is like you know that's a that's a really unfair question, but uh, the Morrisville 4th of July parade is pretty good, but I've been in the one in Reading, and just last weekend I was actually in a car Halloween parade in Shelburne, which was a lot of fun. Um, and, uh, you know, growing up, we always did the Wells River 4th of July parade, so I'd have to be pretty partial for that. Um, and, man, the difference between Democrats and Republicans, you know, um, in this campaign, I have to admit, uh, there's just so much negative campaigning coming out of my opponent and seeing that nationally. You know, I don't know if that's a personality thing or a party thing, but I'm pretty happy to be who I am running the campaign that I've run with a really incredible team of Vermonters from all corners of the state and, um, and proud to be a Democrat, uh, running in a year where I really think we have to focus on the issues and we have to um, really really put forward a brighter vision not only for the state but also for the country and um just really really proud of of the campaign we've run and the and the team and and I think you know at the heart of it being a vermonter and being from this incredible state and having the opportunity to grow up here and work here and now run for office which is such a privilege I mean, privilege to
4: talk because matters everything you, that matters it. to you huh does Being that, a vermonter that's important to you. You think as a qualification, like you know, I, I in my heart, I will always vote, try to vote for Vermonter because I'm a native Vermonter, and I just feel like that's important. Um, but yeah. also, don't want to vote for somebody who's only lived in Vermont and hasn't been outside of Vermont to see what else is out there, you know? Yeah. Well, I like to
10: say, you know, whether you've been in Vermont for four days, four years. Uh, you know, for decades, or in my case, you know, four generations, um, we're all Vermonters, and we have to be welcoming, and we nah, should be, that's, that's the direction we need to go in right. the state.
1: <laughs> Kip, i got to go, but <laughs> thank, you. thank you for the call. i got to remember that question about the 4th of July parade. That's a pretty good one. I'm going to have to steal <laughs> that from you for future candidate interviews. Hey, uh, uh, Tom from Newark's on the line. Good morning, Tom.
8: Good morning.
5: Hi, Tom. Thanks for Hi. calling in from Newark.
8: Yes, um I'd like to ask you a question about this Global Warming Solutions Act that was passed and veto overridden this year. Uh, How do you figure a small businessman, for instance, or somebody like that, uh, is going to be able to deal with the impact of this? And I, I find it rather draconian myself. And I'm no longer in business for myself. I haven't been for a number of years. And one of the reasons I, I feel like the state has driven me out of business. But, uh, it seems to me that every day that goes by, you've got a tax increase, you've got a fee increase, you've got some other kind of thing you have to deal with, motor vehicle issues, and now this global warming solutions. We're going to solve global warming. With the six hundred thousand people that live in the state, I'd like to—I'd like to know what your your idea would be uh, about concerning that.
10: Yeah, Molly. No, it's, it's a really important question, and I was saying earlier that you know, I've done eight community forums uh, just in the month of September, driving around the state, and again and again, uh, Vermonters coming up to me and talking about the impact of, of climate change on their businesses. You know, be it maple sugar makers who are boiling sap in. In January which is unheard of uh, farmers who are dealing with you know incredibly dry summer or our are, uh, ski areas that are trying to figure out where they're going to get water from if they need to make snow this winter so we have to act and the Global Warming Solutions Act is not perfect but it's an effort by our state and showing a lot of leadership to make mitigating the impact of climate change on our businesses, those who are working our Molly, lives. Molly, I, I hate families, to do
1: it, but i got to stop you there. Possible. We're about out of time. I appreciate you spending some time with us this morning, Molly Gray, the Democratic uh, nominee for lieutenant governor. Thanks so much.
10: Thank you so and much for having me, folks. Get out and vote and visit mollyforvermont.com. Join our team, not only for the next five days, but through this election and into lieutenant governor's office. Dave, thanks so much for having me.
1: That's about it for today's edition of the Dave Graham Show. Stay tuned for Bill Sayre, Common Sense Radio. We'll talk all again tomorrow.